On a dark desert night. A small voice calls. Sister, will you tell us a tale? Jinn, Magians, Sultans, Buried Treasure. We're going to explore what they say about their cultures then and why they captivate us now. Light your lamp and pour some tea while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the Fairy Tellers podcast. We are getting back into some Thousand and One Nights stuff. It's been my favorite thing to be studying this whole year. And today is super exciting because we're going into one that people have probably actually heard of, but also, if you're like me, probably have no idea what any of the stories are actually about, and that is Sindbad the Sailor. Yes. What is crazy about like the name recognition that there is is that like this story has been turned into so many like movies and cartoons and plays like it it just is like in all like forms of media that the name Simbad the sailor like has so much name recognition but because you can basically stick him into any voyage story yeah most people don't know any specific voyages that are actually in like the Thousand and One Nights collections, which is cool because it basically has turned the character of Simbad the Sailor into this traveling character that can be put in any big travel story yeah. throughout time. So you yeah. can just plug him in anywhere and he fits as a character on the high seas. I'm surprised they haven't done, and maybe they haven't, I just am not aware of it, but like a Treasure Planet style, like Sinbad the Sailor, but in space. Sinbad the Sailor in space. Because actually, like, at least the couple of stories that I read to prepare for this episode, it's like both of those could kind of be taking place on other planets. Because the whole kind of idea is he, in the two that I read, he ends up in like these strange places that are unlike the normal world, you know, with like crazy things going on. You're actually like blowing my mind right now because like now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, isn't that like what Star Trek is? Yeah. <laughs> like where they accept that, you know, they're not going from like planet to planet necessarily selling stuff. They're yeah. going from planet to planet to like, create these like kind of political inner space like alliances and stuff yeah but how is simbad the sailor as a story different from like firefly <laughs> yeah yeah not so far off yeah i'm like oh my gosh now like that's all i'm gonna be thinking about is like how is simbad the sailor not just ocean Star Trek or like Ocean Firefly. So if you're out there looking for a topic of your master's thesis, we just handed it to you <laughs> on a silver platter. Get to work. Oh, man. And then send it to us because I would love to read it. Indeed. Or if you're uh, a screenwriter and you're working on a screenplay about that now because we just gave you that brilliant idea, let us see it. We'd love to. Sweet. Anyway, so... <laughs> So when I was getting ready for this episode, it kind of had this like finale feel to it because we're going to be incorporating a lot of different stuff that we've talked about in like past episodes. Again, you don't have to have like listened to all of the Thousand One Nights episodes to enjoy this episode, 
just the other episodes kind of like round out the information better. It's kind of like a Marvel, you know, cinematic universe thing going on where it's like if you have read or seen the other ones like it does add to the hearing of this but you don't have to to get this individual story yeah so this also felt like a finale episode because we're going to be talking about again well-known story by name and then it also has a really interesting origin into the Thousand One Nights because it'll bring us back to Antoine Galan. But this is not our finale episode for the <laughs> Thousand and One Nights. There is more to come, people. Yeah. So the story cycle of Sinbad the Sailor is not an orphan tale. Yes. I'm so happy to report to all of you because uh, telling people about orphan tales is always a bummer because, you know, they're like, oh, I know Alibaba and the 40 Thieves and I know Aladdin. And I'm like, oh, well, turns out you don't actually know any stories that are from the Thousand One Nights. Nights. So in the last episode that we did, which was on Harun al-Rashid, I had a quote from the Arabian Nights of Companion and that kind of referenced this episode. And so I'm kind of going to like bring it back to that. So I'll, I'll, I'll read the quote first again for people who haven't listened to all of the episodes. It's okay. We give you everything you need in the one episode that we're doing. Yeah, we got you. So it says, although the Sinbad, the sailor cycle of stories was not added to the knights until the early modern period, they were certainly composed in the Abbasid period when Basra served as Baghdad's port on the Gulf. So, in the last episode, we talked about the Abbasid dynasty, Harun al-Rashid, all that stuff, is why that quote was relevant then. So, this quote also kind of begs the question, why was Sinbad the Sailor added to the knights in the early modern period if not before then. So this is all thanks to Antoine Galland. Oh, Antoine. <laughs> that old rapscallion. <laughs> the Sinbad the Sailor stories existed before the early modern period. In fact, because of the subject matter that they cover, they're pretty well placed in the story themes of the Abbasid dynasty and later into the Islamic Golden Age. The Islamic Golden Age has a couple different time frames that historians use. And so we're talking around like the 7th century to the 13th century. That's not how long the Abbasid dynasty was around. But right. the Abbasid dynasty started the Islamic Golden Age, which is why it's like 7th century. Yeah, yeah. So some historians have it starting later or earlier, depending on kind of like what their time frame or scales of reference like are but during the height of the islamic golden age the boundaries of the empire were massive so i have a quote from the greats course the islamic golden age nice. see i have other quotes at its height, the Islamic Empire was second only to China in size. It stretched from Morocco over the top of the African continent all the way into modern-day Turkey in the north and across 
Persia and Afghanistan into parts of Pakistan. 20% of the world population was contained in this area at the time. It was a massive region. Yeah. So stories that were coming out of this time period had a lot to do with the wonders that existed in other lands. So animals you've never heard of before, plants that you've never seen before, even races of like humanoid creatures full of wonders that you wouldn't be able to even comprehend. Mm -hmm. So it was a super exciting period of time and the stories reflected that. And as we get into this story, it's going to be super interesting because you will recognize creatures that we know about and a mix of creatures that like we know aren't real. And it's just really interesting how all of it was both considered fantasy, but then also like story travelogue of, you know, what exists out there. Yeah. So these were types of stories that were very, very popular during this time period because of all of the like traveling and like intermixing that was going on. So Robert Irwin says in The Arabian Nights, A Companion, while Simbad certainly draws on the somewhat garbled reports of real Arab seafarers in the Indian Ocean, the documentary elements in the voyages of Simbad should not be exaggerated. Captain Buzurg, in his 10th century compilation, The Book of the Wonders of India, claimed that nine-tenths of the world's wonders were in the East. In his book, Captain Buzarg did draw on real accounts by mariners and merchants of what they had seen in India, China, Java, and perhaps even Japan. However, the main impetus behind his and similar compilations was to collect instances of the ajaib, which means wonders. So literary works were plundered to peg out these collections with tales of Amazon islands, cannibal societies, dog-headed men, and human-headed trees. The further the traveler ventured from the heartlands of Islam, the stranger things became, until ultimately one came to the outermost ocean, the Green Sea. Nothing lives on or in this sea. No one had sailed in its waters. It is dark and stinking and extends forever. Sounds lovely. (laughs) Sounds lovely. So the stories of Sinbad the Sailor definitely fit into the time period of other tales in the night. So they aren't originals Mm -hmm. to Antoine Galland, which is a super relief. (laughs) But they were always written independently of the Thousand and One Nights collection. They weren't with the Thousand and One Nights. So the story goes that Antoine Galland was traveling in Constantinople in the 1690s, and he came across a manuscript of the tale of Sinbad the Sailor. So he was encouraged by the commercial success of a friend of his, Charles Peralt. Oh, snap. We know that guy. We know Charles Peralt. He is a French writer who collected fairy tales such as Cinderella. Puss in Boots? Puss in Boots. Bluebeard. So, yeah, he's big name. And he was a friend and contemporary of Antoine Gland. So 
Antoine Glenn seeing the commercial success that Charles Perrault had and getting encouragement from Charles Perrault, he decided that he was going to try his hand at selling folk tales also. So he ended up translating this work of the tale of Sinbad the Sailor, and he published it in French in 1701. And this was such a success sales-wise that he decided to translate a Syrian manuscript of The Thousand and One Nights. The first of those were printed a few years later in 1704, and when volume three of his tales was published, he re-included the Simbad cycle of tales. And ever since then, Simbad the Sailor has been inside of The Thousand and One Nights. Interesting. So... I'm confused, though, because you said it's not an, they're not orphan tales mm-hmm. because they're not like written by European dudes after the fact. <laughs> but yeah, they're just like they are contemporary stories to the stories in the nights that were added into the collection after leaving kind of the the Islamic world. Yes. So, yeah. So it's like. These stories were told, rewritten, written down, like copied down, all that inside of the Middle East. But they were never included with the Thousand One Nights until a European, Antoine Glenn, stuck them in to the Thousand and One Nights. And so this cycle of tales now is always included with the Thousand and One Nights, even though... It's definitely not an original to the set of Tales of Thousand One Nights. Right. Which is kind of like we've mentioned before, in keeping with the tradition of the Thousand and One Nights, like mm-hmm. as they went along anyway, where they were there was a thing where they were constantly adding different stories that have been circulating around. Exactly. It's just interesting because it was done from someone outside the culture rather than someone like inside the culture. Someone's like, oh, these two things are from the same place. Let's just put them together because they kind of work together thematically. And it does seem like it fits. And I don't know if it's just because the translation worked extra hard to make it seem so, but it doesn't feel out of place in the Thousand One Nights at all. So, yeah, which I think is also like because... With, like, orphan tales, they're called orphan tales because even though Antoine Galland says that they're from the Middle East, they have no parent manuscript that connects them actually to that area, as opposed to this one that does, which makes it so that this one, it really does feel like, in every way, it belongs inside of... The Thousand One Nights, because the right. the place is right. There's other stories like we're about to see that this tale is very firmly placed during the Abbasid dynasty. And there's other tales inside the Thousand One Nights that also are from that. And so like this tale just like, you know, meshes in really, really well with a Thousand One Nights where it would be hard to tell that like it wasn't in there originally. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So we're going to be retelling some of the voyages of Sinbad. There are seven voyages of Sinbad. We're not going to cover all of them, but I would definitely encourage people to read over all of them because they're 
is really good. There's really interesting tie-ins with like other literature. And we'll probably talk about this like later in the episode, but there's a lot of tie-ins with Greek mythology, just other cool tie-ins that like people might notice if they read through all of them, Mm -hmm. but we don't have time to go through all seven voyages. And so we're going to be telling four voyages of Sinbad, but I made sure that they were some of the most awesome ones or the ones that would upset Jeff the most. Yes. Love it. That's it's my main focus every, every day of my life. So normally I'm not that big into like meanings of names because a lot of the times when people are like, oh, what special meaning does this one name have that gives us insight? And I'm kind of like, you know, the same way that any name in any other story, it's not like Cinderella where it's like a cruel nickname or something. Anyway, so mm-hmm. I don't like to get into like the like, oh, did you know that the name Aladdin actually means thief in the night? And I'm like, no, it doesn't. That's weird. <laughs> but the name in this story for literary reasons, it's important to know what it means. And we'll okay. discuss more about that at the end. So the name Sinbad means dweller of Sindh. And Sindh was like a province in India. So basically the name just means like a person who lived in this area. Um, mm. And hold on to that because we are going to talk about that later at the end of the story and why that has a literary tie-in and meaning. All right. So in the time of the Caliph, Harun al-Rashid, there was a poor man named Sinbad the Porter. And a porter is a person who um, is paid to carry like groceries from the market to the home of whoever pays like the porter. So usually somebody who's wealthy, who's not going to carry their own stuff back from the market all the way to their house. Um, so Sinbad the Porter was a poor man who was always working hard every single day, trying to just earn a living. And this one day he was carrying a particularly heavy load on a particularly hot day. And he was feeling sweaty and exhausted and miserable. And as he was walking, he passed by what appeared to be the home of a merchant, just beautiful doorway And there was a bench next to this door. And he was like, you know what? I need to sit down and rest for a minute or I'm not going to make it. So Sindbad the porter sat down at this bench, took the load off of himself and was just enjoying the rest. And from under the door of the house, he could feel a cool, refreshing breeze. And he could smell the aroma of wonderful, delicious food. And as he sat there a while, he started to be able to hear the sound of people laughing and singing and instruments playing and people just having a good time. And so as he's listening to all of this and smelling this delicious smell, he just kind of thinks to himself, wow, some people (laughs) really have everything And other people have to suffer. 
And he does go ahead and say, you know, like, this is obviously like God's choice and what's fated to be. And, you know, we can't grumble too much, but I'm going to grumble a little. (laughs) And so he offhandedly out loud said a poem, which I'm going to read to you because for literary reasons, it is important to the story. He said, others are fortunate living without hardship and never once enduring what I must endure. They live in comfort all their days with ease and honor, food and drink. All are created from a drop of sperm. That's a little weird. Hmm. (laughs) I'm like the next man and he is like me. But oh, how different are the lives we lead. How different is wine from vinegar. So he finishes his poem and he starts to pick up his pack to leave. And out of the front door comes like a young boy wearing like just really beautiful clothes. And he says, oh, Porter, my master has invited you inside. And at first Sinbad was like, oh, I, I, no, (laughs) no, thank you. Um, I, you know, I have a pack. I need to go and like, you know, finish what I'm doing. And the boy was like, no, no, no. My master wants you like inside. He's summoned you to come inside. Please come in. And so Sinbad's like, okay, better go in. So he is led inside and he's looking around at like, wow, yeah, this guy is really wealthy. He was like, this guy has so much stuff. Like, I'm surprised he's not a king or, (laughs) you know, somebody higher ranking this is like so much amazing stuff. And so he gets led into the room and, you know, sitting around this like table that's like full of food and drink and everything that people are gathered around at the head of this table is it's a a large and venerable man uh, with facial hair touched with gray. And so he's looking at this, you know, really nice kept man, like big guy, jovial, happy looking guy. Mm. And the guy kind of like waves him in closer. And so Sinbad the porter, he like, he comes over and this guy's like, hey, I was wondering if you wanted to like eat and drink with us. Do you want to dine with us? And Sinbad the porter was like, yeah, that sounds great. That sounds wonderful. So he sits down and they're, he's talking with, uh, you know, the master of the house and enjoying the drink and the food and the music and everything is just like going really, really wonderful. And as the meal is kind of winding down, the man who is like sitting down was like, oh, I really enjoyed having you, Sinbad the Porter, at uh, like our meal with us. And Sinbad was like, oh, thank you so much uh, for having me here. And the guy at the table was like, I was wondering if if you wanted to recite that poem that you said outside, if you could repeat that for me. And Sidbad the Porter immediately felt extremely embarrassed because he's like, oh, this guy's <laughs> been so nice to me. And I'm like getting called out on like my poem, which wasn't super like flattering. And so he was like, oh, no, no, no. Like, pl- like don't, don't hold my words like against me. He says, and I love this, he says, for toil and hardship together with a lack of means, teach a man to have bad manners and stupidity. So, like, he basically, you know, is trying to be like, oh, no, I'm sorry you heard me say, like, that poem that I said, and it, like, it was rude 
of me to say, I'm sorry that you heard that. Mm -hmm. And the man at the table was like, no, no, no. You don't have to be like embarrassed by the poem that you said. You have become like a brother to me. So I would love it if you would just repeat for me and the group gathered here the poem that you said. And so Sinbad the Porter repeated the poem that he had said outside that was all about like, yeah, some are fortunate and some live by hardships and never once endured what I must endure. You know, like he recited the poem that he had said out loud in front of the group. And the man sitting at the table was like, thank you so much for repeating that for me. I want to tell you the story about me for I am a lot like you. My name is Sinbad the sailor. (laughs) And I want to show you what I have done to earn what I have. And this guy is like, okay, bro. (laughs) And so Sinbad the sailor started the tales of his journey. So he said, when I was young, like you, I was actually very rich because my father had a lot of money. And when my father died, I was left all of his money for my own. And like the foolish youth that I was, I spent all of that money in the first year. And then I was completely destitute. Oh, man. I know. Like, come on, dude. Yeah. Tale as old as time. Yeah. But come on. Break the cycle. Sinbad's all about cycles. That's true. The tail <laughs> cycle. Jokes. So Sinbad the sailor was in poverty, struggling, knowing like, what do I do now that all my money's lost? So Sinbad the sailor said that he once heard his father quoting King Solomon, the son of David, on both of whom be peace, saying, Three things are better than three other things. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. A live dog is better than a dead lion. And the grave is better than poverty. Dang. I want to clarify that statement a little bit because it sounds like what he is saying is that it's better to die than be poor. Yeah. But what he meant was that it is better to like risk everything to get yourself out of poverty, like poverty. So like, if you're thinking, Oh, I could get on this merchant vessel and like try to improve my lot. But what happens if, you know, like, Oh no, but I'm too scared to try because what could happen? That's, that's what it means by the grave is better than poverty. Not it's better to be dead than before. Um, because that's not what he no, says. It's just say. a Kanye West <laughs> lyric. Yeah. Which what helps clarify that is the one that comes before it, which is a live dog is better than a dead lion. Right. Like it doesn't if you're if you're great and mighty and whatever and you end up dead, like then it would be better to be an alive dog. Which actually then seems to say, like, then don't try to be i don't know it's complicated (laughs) but anyway that was what he recited and then like to more clarify that point he recited a poem that said it is through toil that eminence is won whoever seeks the heights must pass nights without sleep 
The pearl fisher must brave the depth of ocean if he is to win power and wealth. Whoever hopes to rise without effort will waste his life in search of the impossible. And so with that, he kind of gathered up a variety of like trade goods that he thought he could make some money selling in other places. He boarded a ship and he sailed downriver to Basra because remember he was in Baghdad. He hopped on the Tigris, went down that river where it meets up with the Euphrates that leads to the port city of Basra. In case anybody doesn't have a map with them. <laughs> nice. In case people are like, wait, how did he get from Baghdad to Basra? By boat. By, That's by river. So he took a he took a boat down river until he got to Basra. And then he joined up with a bigger ship. And they headed out to sea and they spent their days and nights working hard on this boat. And then as they were passing island after island, going from sea to sea, land to land, everywhere they passed, they would buy and sell, barter and, you know, do everything that they could to get riches for themselves while they were out on this voyage. So it's one day. They saw this island that looked like paradise. It looked absolutely beautiful, and it didn't look like there was anybody who was there. And one thing that's great about islands that it looks like nobody's there that look like they're rich in resources is that you can put some of those resources on your boat and then sell them at the next place. And so, you know, everybody climbed out of the ship, went over to the island, and started to look around, see what they could find. And they very quickly were finding things that looked really delicious to eat. They had fish that needed to be cooked up and they, you know, had all these uh, fruits and wealth. And this this island had like so much stuff on it. So the sailors lit a fire and started to cook up their food. And then pretty quickly from the ship, they heard the shouting from their captain saying, save yourselves, hurry, board the ship as fast as you can if you want to escape destruction. This is not an island, but a giant fish that was sleeping. And now that you've lit a fire on it, it's going to dive down into the water. Get this fire off of me. (laughs) Run. So everybody starts running to their boat so that they can head back to their ship. There's a mad scramble. A lot of people were able to make it back on those boats, but like a third of them didn't make it onto the boats in time before this giant fish dived down into the ocean and they got dropped into the water. And most of those men perished because they weren't able to swim But very quickly, Sinbad was able to find a large wooden tub that was used for washing. And he climbed in that and he tried to make his way back to the boat, but he didn't make it back in time. And he watched as the boat sailed off without him leaving him in the middle of the ocean in a wash tub. Poor Sinbad. So Sinbad says that with the help of the wind and the waves, He finally was pushed to shore after a day and a night onto an island where trees were growing out over the water. 
So he clutched onto the branch and pulled himself onto land. And it says that the soles of his feet showed traces of having been nibbled by fish, even though he had not noticed that earlier. So he starts like stumbling around the island, just looking for things to eat, place to lay down and rest his body. And as he's stumbling around this island, he looks up and he sees a beautiful mare, which is a female horse, tied to a tree near the shore. And where there is a horse tied up to a tree, he assumed there had to be people. So he went over to this mare. When he got close to the horse, it suddenly started like rearing up and letting out like a loud noise. And out from underground popped a man who was like, who are you? What are you doing here? And he was like, um, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm a stranger. I just came up on the water. My was on a ship. And then there was a big fish. And then I floated here on a, uh, in a wash tub. And the guy's like, oh my goodness, what in the world? Be quiet, come with me. And he's like, okay. So this random underground man takes Sinbad the sailor and he leads him into these like underground tunnels and then into an underground chamber, which had a big, large hall. And again, the guy was like, okay, wait, what's going on with you? And Sinbad was like, I was just a sailor. I was sailing around on a boat. There was like an accident. I ended up not on the boat and I washed up here, like on the shore. I'm just looking for people to like help me. And the guy was like, oh man, you're so lucky that you were able to like see my horse and then find me because you could have been found by a crazy person. <laughs> just kidding. He didn't say that, but that would have been funny because yeah. like... Anytime somebody's like, it's a good thing you found me instead of some crazy person. They're usually a crazy person that's saying that. In my experience. Oh, yeah. 100 P. Anyway, so the underground man, Sinbad, was like, so who are you? What is going on here? And the guy was like, oh, well, so I'm from a nearby kingdom. I am one of the grooms of King Marajan. And we're here with his horses. See, what we do is we bring the finest mares who have never been mounted and never had, like, been impregnated before. Mm -hmm. And we tie them up by the shore. And then on the new moon, seahorses will come out of the water. <laughs> And impregnate these horses. Okay, so listen, guys. I need you to understand when I say seahorses, this is a problem with, like, translation. Because when he says seahorses, and remember, this story is from, like, the ninth century. They mm -hmm. didn't, like, they're not, sea like, giant seahorses, seahorses, the way that we know seahorses. Just like horses as we would think of them on land, but of the sea is what I'm assuming. Yes. There is a Greek mythical creature called a hippocampus, which is also confusing because that's a part of the part brain. Part of the brain. But. <laughs> Weird. So, yeah. 
Um, but the Greek version is half horse, half fish. So it has like front hooves and then a tail back. But these seahorses, it sounds like they are like full horses, but more beautiful, more mystical, more magical than regular horses. And but but shaped more like a horse, but they live in like the sea when I say seahorses. So these horses will come out of the sea and they will mount and impregnate the mares. And then they will try to take the mare back into the water with them. But because she's tied up, she can't go. And so usually a big ruckus will start up because the seahorse is fighting with the mare. And that's when we pop out from our underground hiding spot and we scare off the seahorse. And then we take the mares back to King Marjan. And the babies that they give birth to are the most exquisite magical horses ever to walk the earth. This is super fascinating just because there are a lot of myths about what makes Arabian horses better than uh, other horses in the world. So this isn't even like the only kind of like origin story of like where like the best Arabian horses come from. This is kind of like a, a common story to like explain right. why Arabian, Arabian horses, horses are the most wonderful horses of all. After this guy explained all of that to Sinbad, they spent the night in this underground tunnel, you know, just like eating and hanging out. And when they heard, you know, the mare and the seahorse, you know, having this like ruckus, they and the rest of the grooms of King Marjan ran up out of the tunnels, went to the beach and scared the seahorses away from the mares. And so Sinbad was able to see these like mythical seahorses nice. as he was like scaring them away. So the next day, these grooms got on the horses and they led Sinbad and their horses back to King Marjan. So when they get to King Marjan, they're like, look, we've found this man. He has an incredible story that he can tell you about his journeys at sea. So Sinbad tells all about this massive fish situation and what had happened to him. And the king really was like, wow, that's an incredible story. Um, let's see if we can find a job for you, something for you to do in our kingdom. And so they made him the clerk of the ports. And so he worked at the ports, keeping track, logging everybody's information you know, imports, exports was basically like writing it all down. That was like his job. And he would ask people as they were coming in, if any of them knew how to get to Baghdad, because he wanted to, you know, get back to Baghdad. And most of the people had no idea how to get back there. And he was like, oh, okay. And he just kept doing his job. <laughs> While it's, I love that there was like this, like random, like side note that they were like, while he was working there, he also was able to witness in the sea a fish that was 200 cubits in length and another fish that had a face like an owl. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a weird sentence, but thank you for including it. It's a crazy looking fish. Yeah, because it, it's like it really, no, no other information on that. That was just like a sentence that was like in the middle of a paragraph. It was like, all right, that's interesting. 
So while he was working at the port, things coming in, coming out, he was helping this one ship unload, writing down everything that they had on board. And he, you know, asked, all right, was that everything that was on the ship? And the captain answered, that's everything that we're going to pull out of the ship. We still have some goods that are inside of the ship, but they belong to a sailor who is working with us and he was lost at sea and we need to get those back to his family in Baghdad. And, you know, Simbad was like, oh, are you guys headed back to Baghdad? And they're like, yeah, we're headed back to Baghdad. And he's like, oh, that's great. And he was like, what was the name of the sailor that you lost from your ship? And he was like, oh, his name was Sinbad, the sailor. <laughs> and Sinbad was like, oh, wait, you are my captain. It's me, Sinbad the sailor. And the captain's like, oh, it's amazing how many awful garbage people you meet when you're traveling from place to place. And Sinbad is like, excuse me, what? And he's like, I just told you that I had a bunch of goods that belonged to a guy named Sinbad. And all of a sudden no, you're Sinbad. Sinbad. Nah. And you know, Sinbad was like, no, it is me Sinbad. And he's like, all right, then tell prove me. It. Yeah. He's like, prove it. And he was like, okay, I was on your ship. We were going from Island Island. Everything was going fine. And then we got off on an island that was paradise and we lit some fires and it turned out that the island itself was just a giant fish. And the captain was like, oh my gosh, it is you. <laughs> we thought you were dead. And he's like, well, I'm not dead. And they were like, well, that's amazing news. And so he took some of the goods that belonged to him that were on the ship and he gifted them to King Marjan to make sure that he properly said thank you to King Marjan for all that he had done for him. And King Marjan, listening to the captain retell the story about the giant island fish, was like, oh, wow, we had thought that it was just a story that he had told us, but hearing it from you, now we know it is true. What an incredible adventure. And so Sinbad got back onto this boat, sailed to Basra and then journeyed back to Baghdad to be with his family. And he decided that he was never going to travel again. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Just kidding. He decided he was never going to travel again. And then he lived a life of happiness and peace for a long time. So wrapping up that first voyage story, Sinbad the sailor turns to the porter and he says, what do you think about that story? And Sinbad the porter was like, that story was incredible. I cannot believe like all that you went through on that, that like, that was such a good story. And so Sinbad the sailor handed a thousand dinars to Sinbad the porter. And he said, here is some money to improve your situation. If you would like to hear about my second tale, come back tomorrow. And so Sinbad the porter left for the night, told his family of the good luck, the good fortune that he had had. And they asked him if he was going to go back the next day. And of course, he said yes. And yes. when he did get back, Sinbad the sailor told of his second journey. So Sinbad starts talking about his second voyage. By saying, you know, some time had gone by and I got that hankering to travel again. Probably spent you know, six months in quarantine. It was like, you know what? I'm going on a trip. I don't care where. 
And so he gathered up a ship, gathered up some supplies, and started sailing around selling stuff, as he did before. While they were going along, they came across this island that was like absolutely beautiful. There are these like beautiful trees, all these birds, lots of fruit and other things to eat. And so everyone on the ship was like, wow, this place looks amazing. Let's go. Let's hang out at this place. So they dock the ship, they get off, they're enjoying their time. Everyone's going around eating this fruit, looking at all these beautiful trees, looking at these birds. And Sinbad says, you know what? I feel like it's time for a little nappy nap. So he just lays down to take a nice nap on this beautiful island, and then he wakes up. He doesn't know how much time is gone, but what he does know is that no matter how much time is gone, everyone that came along with him has also gone. They got up on their ships, sailed away, and just totally left him in the dust. How they didn't realize that he was missing, I have no idea. Yeah, I'm like, that seems super rude to not make sure that everybody's on the ship. Yeah, it's like, oh, where's where's Sinbad? They're like, well, who knows? He's probably here somewhere. Like, my, my, my mom would do a head count. Yeah, maybe it was one of those, like, home alone situations where, like, a neighbor kid came by and they're, like, counted Sinbad's head, but it was actually this kid that was just, like, getting his Walkman or whatever. So Sinbad is pretty sad. He's like, dang, I'm stuck here. This sucks. And it says... I fell into so deep a depression, I thought my gallbladder would explode, which I thought was very specific, but also explained some of the symptoms that Ivan's experiencing lately. <laughs> but he started wandering around the island trying to be like, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of here? And he sees this giant white dome, but he can't see like a way to get in there. So he starts walking towards it to see like, hey, maybe if I get in there, maybe this is some sign of civilization. I don't know. But then he sees, like, in the air, this giant bird flying around. And he's like, oh, I remember hearing stories of these birds. And apparently it's a rock, which is this just, like, ridiculously giant bird. And in the old stories, they talk about how, like, these huge birds that they, like, fly around and they'll pick up elephants and bring elephants back to feed their chicks. Like, that's how giant these rocks are. They... Their babies eat elephants yeah. like like they're worms. Yeah, so it's like insane. But he also kind of knew that they would like, you know, they come back to the nest, but then they fly away somewhere else to get food to bring it back. And so he goes up and this the rock flies down, lands on this dome, this egg, and Sinbad's like, okay, I've got an idea. So he takes off his turban to use as a rope and he ties himself to the rock's leg, hoping that it'll take off at some point and fly him to a new location, hopefully a more civilized location, hopefully somewhere at least close to civilization. So he's like kind of so nervous and so freaked out. He's like, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He stays up all night, kind of just in a panic about like when this thing's going to happen. But he stays up through the night and in the morning, the rock, sure enough, flies away, flies off. We should call it Dwayne. So Dwayne, the rock, flies off with Sinbad tied to his talons. And sure enough, as Sinbad had hoped and predicted, the rock lands in a new location far away from where he'd been. So Sinbad quickly cuts the ropes tying him to the rock and falls to the ground. And then the rock flies off. And when it flies off, it kind of goes and lands and grabs like this giant snake and then like takes off and presumably take this giant snake back like a giant worm, to feed its elephant-eating chicks. Aw, precious. 
A mother's love. And so Sinbad, now in a new location, hopefully a better location, starts looking around. And he realizes, no, this is not a better location at all. (laughs) This is a completely barren wasteland. Like there's no plants. There's no animals. There's no fruit. He's like, at least on the other place, they had these like beautiful trees, these beautiful birds, this fruit that you could eat. But here it's like nothing. The only thing it has is these like mountains that are made out of diamond. Like, and so it's so hard, like obviously not with his bare hands or anything, but it's like, he did, like no tools are even like really strong enough to break these diamonds free. Because as we know with modern science, and it seems like they knew back at the time too, it's like diamond is the hardest material known to man. It is still possible to mine, but it sounds like it was like the the crust of the earth at this place was made out of diamond. It's not yeah. like there were diamonds in it. It was like, no, it was just solid diamond. And to make matters worse, everywhere he looks, there are these giant snakes and serpents that are the size of palm trees just slithering around, waiting to make him their lunch. Snakes. Why does it always have to be snakes? <laughs> so he starts walking around cautiously trying to find some bit of safety and he comes across a cave and he's like sweet i will be safe here so he climbs into the cave pulls a rock in front of the entrance and is feeling pretty good about himself like all right at least i'm not going to get eaten by any snakes the rock's not going to go back and pick me up and try to eat me then he turns around and sees a nest of giant eggs with a snake sleeping right on top of them A giant snake. And he's like, oh boy, wrong place. So he spends the night in this cave with the rock blocking the entrance, completely sleepless, again, freaked out, like not wanting to get eaten by the snake in his sleep. I was just confused by the rock blocking the entrance. Oh, a boulder. uh, Yeah, yeah. I was like... (laughs) I was like, wait, was it sitting in front of it? And it's like, no, not the bird. Not Dwayne. That is confusing. Yeah, so it wasn't a bird. It wasn't a rock, the bird. Dwayne, the rock. It was just a boulder that he had rolled in front of the entrance of the cave. So he spends a sleepless night in there, freaked out that the snake's going to eat him. And then he wakes up. And as he wakes up, he kind of like nudges the boulder aside, sneaks out before the snake can get him. And as he's walking out of the entrance of this cave, all of a sudden, plop. Right in front of them, this, like, carcass of, I guess, a sheep just, like, landed on the ground in front of him. And he's like, uh, what the heck? Where did this thing come from? And so he remembered a story about these traders and merchants that would travel to this mountain that was made out of diamonds. And the way that they would mine the diamonds is they would take these sheep, skin them, you know, kind of basically fillet them and then, like, throw them over the edge, onto the diamonds, and then wait for a rock, the bird variety, to come along and like grab them with its, grab the carcass with its talons and pick it up. And then it would, I guess they're kind of like natural instincts is to bring those to the top of the mountain where these traders would be waiting. And when the rock came and dropped the carcass, they would like go and make crazy noises and shoot the rock away and it would leave the carcass behind. And like diamonds would be stuck to this carcass of the sheep because like the rock's talons had like ripped it from the ground. And so that's how they would essentially mine these giant diamonds to like make money. It was a pretty ingenious solution. And he realized, 
oh, this is probably what's happening with this carcass that has just fallen in front of me. So he goes up and he examines the carcass and he sees there are all these diamonds like stuck to it. And so he gathers them up. I'm presuming that means like a rock had picked it up and like dropped it when it got scared rather than setting it down on the top of the mountain. You would hope. You would definitely hope. <laughs> Especially if you were Sinbad. So he's gathering these diamonds. He's stuffing them in his pockets everywhere that he can hold them. He's like, this might come in handy later. And then just as he's doing that and getting ready to move on, plop, another carcass falls down right in front of him. He's like, what the heck? He's like, this thing could have landed on my head. But he gets an idea. He's like, I'm going to take off my turban once again, use it as rope. And I'm going to tie myself to this carcass, hoping again that a rock will come down, pick me up and take me to the top of this mountain. And hopefully that's where these traders are that are waiting to kind of go through this process. So he climbs under this sheep's carcass, ties himself to it with a turban and sits there and waiting. And as he's sitting there, just as he hoped, a rock, the flying variety, Dwayne the Rock, comes along, scoops him up with a handful of diamonds, takes him to the top of the mountain, deposits him there, and then the, the traders run up and they yell at the rock and they scare it away. And as they approach to the carcass to find all the diamonds that they're hoping were there, like Sinbad climbs out covered completely in blood. And these people kind of like freak out, like what is going on? <laughs> As you should, if such a situation were to happen to you, because Sinbad's there again, covered in blood, like stumbling out, looking like a straight up zombie. Seeing the look on these guys' faces, he says, don't be alarmed. Don't be scared. I am a mortal man. Everything is fine. Which is like, yes, they definitely needed some reassurance in that situation. <laughs> and when Sinbad, you know, starts talking to these guys, he recounts his story, everything that had happened to him. And these guys say, by God, fate has granted you a second life. You're the first man to come here and escape the valley alive. And so Sinbad and these dudes start hanging out. They think he's pretty cool because, again, he's the first guy to survive yeah. this crazy situation. The boy who lived. Yeah, exactly. Oops. And he starts he starts trading some of the diamonds that he got from the other carcass with these traders for, like, money, for some provisions, all that stuff. And while they're hanging out and kind of, like, traveling back to be able to make it back to Baghdad, they're telling all these stories about all these other mythical creatures that they've run into like this crazy mythical creature that like no one's ever heard of called a rhinoceros. <laughs> Wild. <laughs> that they're like, this thing is crazy. It's insane. We don't think it exists, but it's this crazy story that people say that they've seen. It's like, it's like a cow and it grazes in the fields, but it's got a giant horn and it'll like impale elephants on the end of its horn and then just like walk around with, like, the carcass of an elephant, like, hanging off of the horn on its face. This thing is intense. Pray you never meet a rhinoceros. Which is neither here nor there. It's just, like, the topic of conversation as they make their way back to uh, the port. Which I find fascinating. Me too. It's, <laughs> like, mixed into all of this. They're like, also, another crazy animal, a rhinoceros. <laughs> yeah. And it's, like... We're talking about this rock, which is a bird so big that it feeds its children elephants, which is in this story 100% real. But then these guys are like, 
this there's this thing supposedly they call it a rhinoceros it sounds pretty far-fetched to me like i don't really <laughs> think that it exists a horn growing out of the front of its face that can't be true that's i mean at least that's kind of what it sounds like and especially even yeah. in the in the text it's like they put like rhinoceros in in quotation marks i'm like imagining them finding out about narwhals <laughs> so they make their way back to Baghdad via Basra. And it's funny because it seems like they always go through Basra and it's like makes a point to say like he goes to Basra and like spends like a, a couple days there, like a week there, like a post, you know, travel vacation before finally going back to Baghdad. Yeah, since it is like the port and it's like once he gets. Oh, yeah. So they go from being in the Arabian Sea to being in the Gulf of Oman, and then into the Persian Gulf. And then Basra is right on the Persian Gulf. And so Basra is kind of where he has to hang out before he can hitch a ride upriver to right, get... To so, up. yeah, so he's probably doing all of his, like, buying and trading and stuff, like, while he's in that big city. Right. And then being like all right let's head up river yeah so he makes his way back to baghdad and then there in baghdad he lives the high life you know trading off his diamonds for whatever he wants he's got a bunch of cash that he traded with the other people before and all these provisions that he's gotten in basra trading these diamonds and other things and life is pretty good he enjoys himself and he's like i will never travel again because i've got everything i need right here so when Sinbad the sailor finishes up his story, he tells Sinbad the porter that if he wants to hear about any more of his voyages, he should come back the next day. And then he gives him another thousand dinars and sends him on his way. And sure enough, the next day, Sinbad the porter shows up to hear the third voyage of Sinbad, which we're not going to tell. And then the fourth day, he comes back to hear the fourth voyage of Sinbad. So Sinbad says, my dear friend, when I got back to Baghdad, I had every intention to stay at home, to just enjoy my life at home and the riches that I had accumulated. And I partied, I had fun with my friends and my family. We enjoyed the high life, but I kept feeling this call to adventure. And I decided I would head out once again. And so I took some trade goods. I said goodbye to my family. And I went down to Basra to get on a ship. So they had not been out on the sea long before. The weather started getting rough. The water started getting choppy. And the captain decided he was going to try to drop anchors to help them, you know, kind of stay weighted and placed in the sea but a violent gale gust of winds came up and started to rip apart their sails and pretty soon the whole ship all of their goods and belongings and all the people on board were dumped into the ocean by the fierce waves and he says that thanks to god he was lucky enough to find a beam floating in the water and he climbed onto it, and so did several other merchants, and they tried to huddle together and to paddle with their legs to move them in a direction. 
And as they paddled a day and a night, some of the weaker men, as they grew tired, would sink down and fall off of the beam they were holding on to and go down into the ocean. But a lot of them were able to hang on to the beam until after a day and a night, it had pushed them onto an island. And when they got to the island, they immediately started looking around to see if they could find Food, water, and anybody that could help them. And as they were looking for food, out of the forest came a crowd of naked men. Uh. It's raining, man. Hallelujah. (laughs) And each of them, it says, without saying a word, grabbed hold of them and took them to meet their leader. And when they came to the palace of this person, There was a bunch of food that was brought out and Sinbad the sailor looked at the food and he thought, I don't know, for some reason that doesn't look right to me. That doesn't look appetizing. And even though he was like starving, super, super hungry, he decided he wasn't going to eat the food that was being given to them by these naked men. (laughs) And, but all of the other people on the trip just started like eating this food as quickly as they could. And almost immediately upon eating it, Sinbad says that their eyes like glazed over almost like they were like their consciousness, their minds had been like immediately like dimmed and they seemed to kind of not know what was going on. And their like bellies like started to grow like bigger, like dis distending is that a word yeah their bellies started to grow and the naked men came out with this is gonna get weird and then it's gonna get weirder and then gross (laughs) the men came out with vats of coconut oil and they were spooning the coconut oil into the crew members mouths and also rubbing their bodies with all of the oil yeah It puts the oil on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Yeah, we're on the right. We're we're on the right uh, (laughs) themes and feelings right now. And so after they had like fed them some of this oil and their like bellies had extended, all of his crew members like leaned over and started shoving the the food even faster, like into their mouths. And they were like plumping up like in front of Sinbad. <laughs> Is this Willy Wonka in the <laughs> coconut oil factory? Yikes. Um, <laughs> the Oopa Loopas are naked men. <laughs> and Willy Wonka is just like the this king who I'm about to tell you ends up being like a ghoul. So it is at this moment that Sinbad realizes that all of these men that were there were actually Magians, which, surprise, this is super racist. Um, (laughs) Magians are priestly caste of Persians that are part of a Zoroastrian religion, Mm -hmm. and... Certain groups did not like them and would demonize them in their stories. <laughs> As an example, might I present this, this story? <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, man. When it's like, oh, surprise. It's This is racism. 
anyway. any of us surprised? No. no. <laughs> Racism. Tale as old as time. So the naked men were Magians, and their king or their leader was actually a ghoul, which in past episodes, I've said that like they're kind of like zombies. They're not like it's there is there is no like direct equivalent to uh like what a ghoul is, but they're like a demon type being that lives in like graveyards and consumes uh human flesh. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Lovely. And also they can shapeshift into being an ostrich, so watch out when you're at a zoo. Whoa. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Gotta watch out. Those ostriches, they might be ghouls and they want to eat your flesh. Anyway, so Sinbad realized that he realized who these like people were and he was immediately terrified and he realized that, you know, what their plan was, was that these Magians would bring people that they found to their king and they would fatten them up so that when they fed them to their ghoul king, they were as plump and delicious as possible. <laughs> Obviously, Sinbad was terrified at this, and so, but he couldn't get away, so he was herded into the pastures of the king with most of his colleagues, because I think only one of them, you know, got eaten that night. You know, you only need one every night. You can't, you can't eat a whole ship's crew of like fattened flesh yeah in one yeah, night you'll have too many leftovers they would just go bad especially without you know refrigeration and stuff obviously no need to be wasteful no so you put you put your fat friends out to pasture <laughs> that's the worst sound bite put your fat friends out to pasture <laughs> So yeah, like the cows that they are. <laughs> so yeah, your your leftovers, you just let them be outside and uh, you know, keep feeding them, keeping them nice and plump and delicious. So Simbad was like in this group just kind of hiding and not getting picked because he was kind of getting scrawnier and scrawnier because he wasn't eating anything. But this one day, he like locks eyes with one of the herdsmen of the crew and says the herdsman realized that this guy because of his eyes not you know being dim from eating like the mysterious food he realized that Simbad was still like kind of you know conscious cognizant of what was mm -hmm. happening and mm -hmm. gave him a gesture and a sign of like a road to sneak off to it doesn't give this guy any motive for why he would do that he, he was just a nice yeah, guy yeah he was like oh man well, we don't want to eat that one. He's too scrawny. So <laughs> Sinbad slips away and starts running as fast as he can, even though he was like starved and scrawny, down this road to just get as far as possible away. And he would stop every now and then so that he could get something to eat, even if it was just the grass that was on the side of the road. And so after stumbling like that for several days, he was found by a man who was like, oh, my goodness, where did you come from? And when Sinbad told him the story about what he just encountered, he was like, oh, wow, 
I've never heard of anybody getting away from like those people. It's amazing that you were able to get away from that. Come with me quickly. We'll get as far as we can away from this kingdom. And so this man that he found on the road took him all the way to his king. This king was like, oh, who are you? Sinbad told him the stories of like where he had been and what had all gone on. This man was like, well, you can stay with us in our kingdom as long as you want. I don't know how to get to Baghdad. I've never been there, but you can stay with us as long as you want. So Sinbad was staying there for a while. And one day he saw, you know, the king riding around on a horse, but he wasn't using a saddle. And so Sinbad asked him, like, why do you prefer to ride on a horse without a saddle? And the king was like, what is a saddle? (laughs) And Sinbad, being an entrepreneur, saw a hole in the market and decided that he could fill that hole in the market. (laughs) And so he hired some like leather workers and metal workers and told them how to fashion a saddle. And so he started up a saddle business, making and selling. Yep, making and selling saddles. And the king was so impressed with this that he asked Simbad if he wanted to marry his daughter. And Simbad was like, I would love to marry your daughter. <laughs> what? Who wouldn't want to marry your daughter? So Simbad marries the king's daughter, and they got along really, really well, loved each other, great match. And he was living a pretty great life with his saddle business and his new wife and everything was going great, which is how you know something is about to go horribly wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That That was a weird laugh hiccup combination. (laughs) (laughs) So this one day, one of Sinbad's neighbors came over and he was crying and Sinbad was like, buddy, why are you crying? And his friend was like, I'm crying because my wife has died. And Sinbad was like, oh, wow, buddy, that's really sad. I'm so sorry that your wife died. And the guy's like, yeah, I'm really sad that my wife died too. But like, you know, my life is like over. And Sinbad was like, oh, buddy, no. Like, I know you loved her and you cared about her and like, you know, you're going to have a grieving process that you're going to have to get through, but like your life isn't over. Like you, you, you'll be able to slowly heal from this grief and, you know, happy days will come. It's going to be okay, buddy. And the guy was like, what are you talking about? And Sinbad was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And he was like, no, here in this country, if your spouse dies, you get buried with them. And Sinbad was like, I'm sorry, what now? I don't like the way that this sounds. And the guy's like, yeah, my life is over. (laughs) In a very literal sense. And the next day, sure enough, the wife's body of of his neighbor was chucked into this deep pit. And then with seven days food and water, his neighbor was lowered down into this pit and left to die. Jeez. And Sinbad was like, oh, my goodness, that is horrifying. But unfortunately for Sinbad, his wife became ill. Oh, no. Yipes. So Sinbad, you know, did all he could to try to help his wife. 
and bring her back to good health. But alas, it was not fated to be, and his wife soon died. And he was like, well, that's not good news for me personally. So the exact same thing happened to him. They threw his wife's body into the pit. They handed him seven days water and food and lowered him down into this pit with his wife's dead body, along with the dead bodies of tons of people. Mm. And when Sinbad describes the absolute disgusting, horrible nightmare scenario situation that he was in, (laughs) it's pretty graphic, yo. It is. So he was like, there was a horrible stink and he was sitting on top of the decaying corpses of like multiple Mm. people, you know, that had all been there. So it's like piled up with decaying corpses at different stages of like decomp and such. And the hole was covered up and he was plunged into darkness inside of this hole. And so he, every day was trying to eat as little food as possible and eat, he was trying to drink a small amount as he could so that he could try to stretch out how long he could stay alive. Yeah. And as he was running out of like food and water one day, the covering of the hole was opened and a dead body was chucked in. And he scooted into the like the shadow of this pit as a woman was lowered down into the pit with seven days water and food and when he saw this woman come in he knew that he could buy himself some more time so when the cover was put on top of this pit he went up behind this woman and took a bone and smacked this woman over the head and killed her oh my gosh Jeez, dude. This part of the story is kind of a bummer. Straight up murdering yep. this other And he lady. took her food and her water. And he did this so many times that he lost count <laughs> for how long he was inside of this pit. <sighs> Until one day, he started to notice that there was a breeze coming from one section of this tunnel. And so he decided that he was going to dig and explore. And as he started to dig a little bit, he started to see some light through a tiny little like hole. So he started digging more and more and more until he had a path out. But his path out led him to the edge of a cliff that was over the water, like over the ocean. Mm-hmm. So what he decided he was going to do was that he would sit out there and wait for a ship. But while he was sitting out there and waiting for a ship, he was also making a collection of items of value that were from inside of the tunnel. And so he had this like cache of stuff that people had been buried with. Mm. And he was just sitting and waiting for like a ship to pass And one day a ship did pass and he jumped on it and he told them who he was and they took him to Basra and then to Baghdad. 
And it said when he got home, he got home more wealthy than he had ever been before, but with many more nightmares. (laughs) And he decided to spend his wealth partying, enjoying life while he was alive because he knew that at any moment he could die. So when he finished telling that horrifying story, which I don't think paints him in the best Uh light, once again, he says to Simbad the Porter, this was my tale. If you want to hear another story of my voyages, come back another day. And the porter comes back a fifth day for the fifth, the story of the fifth voyage. And then he comes back the sixth day for the story of the sixth voyage of Sinbad. For getting paid a thousand dinars just to show up and listen to somebody's story. It's like, uh, heck yeah, I'm going to do that as many times. Hey, why don't you do it a thousand and one times? I'll be back every night, buddy. (laughs) I don't know. Like after hearing that last story where it's like, And then I murdered countless people so that I could live and they would die. Maybe. I'd be like, ooh, you know what? That might be it for me. 5,000 dinars enough. It was enough for that guy to buy a barge and impersonate the caliph every single night while roaming the Tigris River. So, I mean, hey, a lot can happen with 5,000 dinars. I think that that should be the tagline for our whole The Thousand and One Night series. (laughs) You can do a lot with 5,000 dinars. Uh, so on the sixth voyage, pattern repeats. You know, he'd come back. He's partying it up, living the high life on the riches that he inevitably made after going through this crazy ordeal. But we know Sinbad. Come on, the pattern is well established. He's not going to sit around. He's no homebody. He's got that drive for adventure and for traveling and eternal entrepreneurial spirit. He's got to go out and make some more money, even though he has enough to last him several lifetimes. So he decides to get a barge, get some goods, go around and travel, selling them. They're sailing around, port to port, city to city, making trades, making that paper, until one day... (laughs) Although making that had paper had paper been invented yet? No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure, there was paper, invented. but it's a, was money paper. I don't know. It was probably a dinars. Were they paper? Probably like coin. I think they yeah, were metal. Probably. Making that yeah. coin, making that making that cold hard cash. But one day, out in the middle of the ocean, the captain of the ship absolutely loses. His mind, he starts screaming, he starts tearing off his clothes, his turban, starts ripping out his beard hair, and is just like completely distraught, and he's freaking out saying, I have no idea where we are, we've wandered out into an ocean that I have no idea where it is, we're all gonna die. And of course, when the captain is behaving this way, (laughs) we're all gonna die! Everyone else on board starts absolutely freaking out as well. To make matters worse, the wind starts picking up and it's just kind of taking them even further off course. So the captain goes up and he's trying to like take down the sail, but the wind is too strong. Like he can't even like get a hold of the stuff to take down the sail. And it just like sends the ship careening into this mountainous island, like shattering the ship against the island. All the goods on the ship go flying everywhere. The people on the ship just go flying all across the island. And everyone, obviously, because their boat is in pieces, 
is completely stranded. So the sailors are wandering around. The ones that survived being scattered all around are just completely scared out of their minds. So it says uh, that the beach was so full of goods thrown out by the sea from sunken ships whose crews had been lost. So not just theirs, but like a bunch of others. It said the extent of this jetsam was enough to bewilder and confuse the mind, which is interesting because in another episode we talked about the maritime legal definition of flotsam and jetsam. I can't remember which one's which at the moment, but... What's funny, jetsam is legal for you to collect because jetsam means that it was jettisoned from the ship, which means that the people gave it up, as opposed to flotsam, which you are not legally entitled to because it was lost within, like, a disaster. Which, this is interesting that they use the word jetsam because it sounds like it was flotsam. Yeah. Except, but then it would make it illegal for them to... To take it. To take it. Which, I don't know if that's why they picked the word jetsam inside of this translation or what, but... Because the legal thing, that was... When we talked about that, that was the legal definition of, like, Europe in whatever time, not... Yeah. So I'm sure they use that so that it's like, oh, hey, we just want you to know this is legal for them to take. They've got the finders keepers rule going on. And what was funny was like back when we talked about that, that was in our death in a nut episode. Yeah. And it was a complete aside unrelated to the story. (laughs) It was not unrelated because it was the guy would go down to the shore and he would collect the stuff, which explained why he was on the shore to meet death. Anyway, that's one of my favorite episodes. So yeah, here, here's a quick plug for a death and a nut. It's Definitely a little slept on. To it. Yeah, and Katrina. It was Katrina has mentioned numerous times about how it's one of her favorite yeah. fairy tales, and I happen to agree. We're at our best when we talk about death on this podcast. Maybe, maybe less so when I talk about uh, a giant stinking pit of decaying dead. I don't know. I was kind of into it. So anyway. The survivors are going around, picking up as much of this jetsam as they can find, gathering it up, gathering up supplies to see how long that they could possibly survive. Meanwhile, Sinbad climbs to the top of this mountain to see what he can see, to see like, okay, what's the situation? Where can we get to? What's going on? Sinbad went over the mountain, (laughs) Sinbad went over the mountain, Sinbad went over the mountain. To see which sea he could see. And what he could see was he found that at the base of a mountain, there was this freshwater spring that was shooting forth fresh water. But also near that spring, there were like countless numbers of gems, pearls, just lying like pebbles in the ground near this spring. The spring was sparkling with all these precious stones. And he found like all this crazy stuff like Chinese aloes and all this like rare precious wood, just tons of like high quality goods. And he also found that this stream produced what they would say was raw ambergris, which oozed out like wax over the sides of the spring and then like would melt in the summer heat and extend along the shore. Which is interesting because when you look into what ambergris is, it's basically like this uh, secretion that comes out of like the stomachs and intestines of whales that they then like puke up and like it becomes this substance that's used in all sorts of stuff. 
that was actually yeah. very valuable. Yeah. And yeah, it's really interesting in the story because Simbad says that he was like watching whales ingesting some of it after it had come out of this stream. Yeah. He was watching them ingest it and then throw it up, which means it's so fascinating because it seems like he, like whoever was telling the story understands that there is a relationship to whales and ambergris, but they don't quite understand what it is or how it got inside of the whale. Yeah. Like it must've come from somewhere, but it's a byproduct of a whale. Yeah. So it's like in this, they're like, oh, it's like this natural thing that then the whales eat and then they throw it up. And like that completes the process of making it into the thing that we know that is usable instead of it rather just like being whale puke. But apparently it smells really good, used as incense, medicine, like it was very, it was considered very valuable. Yeah. And they're talking about like in this story, they say like when the sun rises and it starts like melting the ambergris, it like melts and and puts off this smell of musk all throughout the valley so it was like this perfume smelling valley of whale puke (laughs) but they're like no one can reach this stuff because the mountains all around are completely unscalable and so the survivors again wandering around getting whatever provisions they can and similar to being in the pit of dead people they start rationing out the supplies that they gathered up to try to make it last as long as they could but inevitably, people started dying of starvation and fear, it says. And so they would wash the corpses, bury them, give them, you know, kind of the proper send off that they needed. And so many would die. Eventually, they all died off. Sinbad was the only one that was left. And he had like the tiny little stores of food. And he's like, oh man, like I'm going to die. I wish I died before my companions so that they could have at least like washed and prepared my body and buried me. But what am I going to (laughs) do? So Sinbad gets a little sick. He's like, I'm on death's door. He digs his own grave. And he's like, as soon as I feel like I'm going out, I'm going to crawl in here and just die in this hole. And then let the wind like blow dirt continually and like sand continually over me to bury me. So at least I'll get a proper burial. That's some, that's a pretty dark place to be in. Like mentally. I mean, not, not that in other stories he hasn't been in a darker place mentally. Yeah, and then and then once again, he's like, dang it, I cannot believe I've done this to myself again. I was living such a good life, and I just had to go out on this adventure. But then he starts thinking back on, like, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth voyages. He's like, you know what? I had this same thought every single time, and I always made it out okay. What am I going to do? So he starts looking around again. He's like, okay, there's got to be something. So he's like thinking it over. He's like, okay, there's a stream that goes with the spring that's got to lead somewhere. So he's like, I got it. I'm going to go around. I'm going to get this wood. I'm going to make myself a raft and I'm going to travel down here. And he's like, and if I die, I die there rather than dying here. Like I'm going to die either way. But this way, maybe something else could happen. We'll see. So he makes this raft that's like just as broad as a stream. And he starts following the path down. So finally, he follows the stream down till it reaches like an underground tunnel through the mountain. And he gets in there and it's like, boom, he's plunged into darkness. So now he's going along. He has no idea where he is. He has no idea how long time is passing. And it's really dark. He's kind of bobbing in the ocean. And he's basically starving to death. So this guy's exhausted. So he just like, 
Oh, and also, not to mention, the tunnel's getting so low that it's, like, scraping his head, so he has to, like, lie down on his stomach inside the raft and just falls off to sleep because he's so exhausted from all of this stuff. And then when he wakes up, he finds himself out in the light again. He looks around and he sees that he's surrounded by Indians and Abyssinians. And so they come up and they start speaking to him in their own language, which he doesn't understand. And he starts speaking back to them and they don't understand. He thinks this whole thing is just a dream. And he's like, I have no what's going on. But then finally, someone approaches him and talks to him in Arabic. He's like, hey, what's up? How did you get here? Where did you come from this mountain stream? Like, what is going on? Who are you? And they're like starting to get to know each other. And <laughs> it was really funny because they're like talking to each other. And all of a sudden, like Sinbad kind of stops and was like, okay, hold up. Get me some freaking food because I'm starving. Like, I'm happy to talk and answer any questions, but you got to feed me first because like, I, I, I can't think like this. So they give him food and he's like, oh, he recovered his spirits a lot, which is like, that's something I can relate to. Like, hey, I've been through a lot. Get me some food and maybe then we can talk. So he yeah. told them everything, everything that happened to lead them down the stream. So after he'd been talking to these people for a while, they decide like, hey, we're going to take you to the king so you can tell him this crazy story. And so he goes, he tells the king, the king is like, dang, that's the coolest story I've ever heard. Good on you for surviving. Congratulates him. So Sinbad starts presenting the king with all of these things that he's found, these precious stones, the ambergris, the aloes, and the king like just gladly accepts it and lets him live with him in the palace. And so while he's staying with the king, they start talking about, you know, how their kingdoms sort of function. And this king starts hearing about the caliph and he's like, wow, like, I really like the sound of this caliph. Like, he sounds like a great leader. And so the king of the Indians and Abyssinians is like, I'm going to send a gift to your caliph. I want you to take it to him. And so Sinbad's like, all right, I will. So he finally gets the word that there was townspeople that put together this ship that was going off. And he's like, hey, this is my chance to go home. I'm going to get on the ship go with them. They all head out. And as he's leaving, the king is like, we've been so happy to have you. We'd love to have you longer, but you can make whatever choice you want. Let me give you some personal gifts for yourself. In addition to this very special gift that I want you to present to the caliph Harun al-Rashid back in Baghdad. And so they set sail. They have a pleasant voyage, fair winds from sea to sea, island to island, until by the grace of God, they arrive in Basra. So Sinbad goes to the caliph Harun al-Rashid and starts giving the gifts from this other king. The caliph is like a little confused, like, wait, what's going on? So Sinbad tells him the whole story of everything that had happened. And of course, the caliph was so astonished by the tale that he ordered his recorders to write it down and to put it in his treasury so that it could be a lesson for everyone that would read it adding it to his vast collection of stories that he had been collecting from interesting things that have been happening throughout the Middle East. And so also the Caliph showed me great favor. Once again, I was back in Baghdad, living it up, living my best life. And that brings to end the story of my sixth voyage. And so Sinbad the Sailor went on on a seventh day to tell of his seventh voyage, which we will not cover, but you are welcome to go read. But when he had finished all of his marvelous tales, 
He turned to Simbad the porter, and he said, Well then, my friend, have you ever heard of anyone suffering as much as I had, or experiencing so many pressing difficulties? And obviously, Simbad the porter, after hearing all these tales of all the things that Simbad the sailor had experienced and gone through, the good and the definitely real bad, <laughs> he said to him, Sir, you have experienced terrible perils. My troubles are nothing compared to yours. You not only deserve a quiet life, but are worthy of all the riches you possess. And Sinbad gave him another thousand dinars, thanked him for listening to his stories, and invited him to become one of his friends and to continue coming and meeting with him and enjoying the company of all of Sinbad's partying friends. <laughs> and that is exactly what Simbad the porter did. And the two Simbads, they lived out the rest of their days in quiet peace. Jeff, okay, first of all, listen, I'm shocked that we got through all four of yeah. the stories in the time that we did. Just like Agreed. Whew, inside this book, right after the story of Simbad, the one that's like that comes next, just in how they like split it up in this one, is City of Brass, which I'm like, ooh. So I want to go back to this idea that I kind of like set up at the beginning about the name of Simbad being important, like in a in the literary sense no. of it. So the idea, again, is like the name means dweller of Sind, like this like one location. And so the fact that the porter's name is Sinbad and that he's saying like, oh, wow, like everybody has like wildly different lives and some people are super, super blessed and some people like have everything while other people, their lives are very hard and they have nothing. And, you know, that's just the way it is, is just like what we've, you know, been given as like our lot in life. And Sinbad, the sailor hearing this, wanted to kind of prove this point to him that like, no, like just because you see that somebody has riches doesn't necessarily mean that like their lives have already been easier. In fact, like I'm a lot like you. And even some of the things I've seen might have been much worse than anything that you've seen. And so, like, you can't compare yourself to someone else, especially, like, when you don't know what they've done, like, with their yeah. life. And it's, like, that idea is just highlighted by the fact that both of these men are named Sinbad. They both even come from the same place. Right. But their lives have taken them in completely different like trajectories. And just because one of them right now is poor and a porter and one of them right now is like rich doesn't mean their fates have always been that or that their lives have always been that or even that that is how their lives are going to stay. And at the end of the story, Sinbad the porter has more money, is welcomed in as a friend. And so he goes through this change of now his fortunes have changed. And so like just literarily, it's just really mm -hmm. interesting. Um, like how that name is used to help compare and contrast these like two characters with each other and kind of prove the point from, you know, going from that poem 
that Sinbad yeah. said to moving into like the actual stories of like Sinbad the Sailor. That is really interesting. I like that a lot. It reminds me of something. I just read a book called Courage is Calling by Ryan Holiday, which was like super good. It's one of the best books I've read all year, if not, you know, in the past five years. Just super inspiring. Yeah. I've told you about it already before. Off. off yeah, podcast. you have. Not, yeah. But in that, there's one part, you know, talking about so much of it is about like courage and why you need to have courage and like how different people have shown courage and the different ways that you can be courageous or whatever. But one of the things that he goes on to say is to like never judge someone else for not being courageous enough or like never judge someone else's courage because you don't understand what their situation was and the things that they were going through, which I thought was really interesting because so much of it is, it's like you could easily take that and be like, this person should have been more courageous. And in the book, even he points out times where it's like, people like kind of judging them about like this is an opportunity this person had to be courageous and they totally like missed it but again at the same time i think he doesn't go the line of like judging them for that because again you don't know all the situations going into it but i love that idea like you're saying of not comparing yourself to someone else because your situations are different and i love again like you said their name is the same meaning they're from the same place they've had different lives but it doesn't mean that one of them is any better than the other. They've just had these different experiences. And it, it is cool that, again, literally, literarily, that they're coming together to be the ones to kind of like have the story told between them. So I want to talk about the kind of like the, the creatures that we run into, the people that we run into, like the travel stuff that is inside of these stories. I love that it's like a thing, like each of these stories. And it's interesting when you call it like a cycle too. It's like, it really does seem like a cycle because each story is like the same story, but different where it's like, we get stranded at this place. We run into crazy creatures and crazy people that we've never met or heard of before. And then we get rich and then we come back and live our life. Like it's the same thing that happens again and again, but it's still interesting and fresh each time because the adventure is different yeah it's like it's really interesting as like a story because unlike some of the other like epic stories that are inside of the thousand one nights when you're reading the epics the epic story you have just like a normal literary kind of like build of like the action where it's like oh we've got the setup the characters we're getting to know them oh rising action like climax resolution you know like you go through like that that same thing while in this cycle of tales, it's all contained in like one tale. But again, yeah, like you have all that stuff happening, but in this like little cyclone yeah. action. It's like the difference between a movie and a TV show. Like the other tales have been movies where it's just like one self-contained stories about these singular characters. Whereas this is like a TV show. It's like on this week's episode, Sinbad goes off to this island and gets lost. Like that's just like the formula that this tv show follows yeah i mean what's interesting too that has like been noted by other people including like you know, robert Irwin, is that simbad himself he does not have a lot of like personal character growth mm -hmm. in that like from thing to thing you're not really noticing like a huge change in his right. character or him like acting differently. It's almost like fate 
throughout the tale is just like happening to him. Yeah. And so he basically is just like, by the grace of God, like I ended up just keep going. I mean, the one thing that he that is a part of his character, I feel, is kind of that first quote that he says that's like accredited to Solomon that basically is saying like be moving yeah while you're alive be on the move yeah be on the move or be dead like that's basically like how that kind of plays out and that's like his whole personality mm-hmm. <laughs> is okay I'm not just gonna sit here I'm gonna be on the move I mean even when he had dug himself a grave in the sixth voyage and had thought, you know what? I'm just going to lay down and die in this. He was like, oh, wait, you know what? No, I got I got at least one more idea. Let me try this like one yeah. last thing. And I mean, because he could have. He could have just said, I'm just going to wait here until I die. And not put in the effort to build a raft and try to go up that stream and through right. that cave and like all that stuff. Like, which that part of the story makes me super claustrophobic. <laughs> Well, it's also, too, even the fact that he was digging his own grave, like, that was still, like, an action of, like, he's like, I don't want to die without my proper, like, burial, but there's no one that can do it for me, so I'm going to do it myself. Kind of just taking ownership through action of his own death. And I love that part, too, where he talks about thinking about, I looked back on all these other voyages that I'd been on and how horrible things had gotten, and I always got out before. Reminds me of another one of my favorite books that I've read this year, which is called The Obstacle is the Way, also by Ryan Holiday. Where that's <laughs> one of the things that they talk about is like when you're going through a hardship, like think back on all the times in your life that you've gone through other hardships and realize like, oh, like I made it through that. Like in the moment, it felt horrible. It felt hopeless, maybe. Yeah. But I made it out. It's like and now I'm feeling horrible and hopeless. But like. I've made it out of other things before. Maybe some of them were worse. Maybe nothing's been this bad, but it's like, but I've always been able to make it out to this point so far. So maybe I can now too. And that's what gets him back up and going and trying his last thing. And it does work out for him. Yeah. I mean, like he had to do some pretty like desperate things. Like, (laughs) like murder a bunch of people. Like murder a bunch of people. Yeah. And steal like their provisions, which here is how I, because like for me, do you ever, you're ever watching like a TV show and somebody, like a character does something and you immediately are like, I'm not rooting for you anymore. Yeah. Like you're like, I can't, I can't root for you. Like you, like even though you were doing tough stuff, I could still be kind of on your side because you had to make like difficult choices. That was like a really hard thing for me, like in this story was like yeah. when he started Killing, he like basically like became a monster that he was trying to fight. My only way of kind of reconciling that in his fourth journey is by saying like, it was part of that country's culture to die that way, like to right. to have people buried together. That was part of their culture. He did not know that when he signed up. Yeah, but those other people did. And instead of them dying a slow, painful starvation death in that pit, yeah, he, he ended it quickly for them. Mercy killing. Yeah, so I almost am like, you know what? They knew that they were going to die when they went into that pit. And he just made it so that they had to suffer less in that pit. That's my way of kind of reconciling. Yeah. Kind of that he had to, he had to turn into like, you know, kind of a monster. Yeah. 
to get out of that one. Yeah. To like get out of like that tough spot. Yeah, it's, um, it's troubling. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. But I, I didn't think about that. Yeah, that is a good point. I mean, does it completely absolve him of like murdering people? Probably not. But it does. <laughs> it is an interesting thing to think about. Of like, that's their culture. They knew it was going to happen. They were go, went in there expecting to die. Like he did not. Like you said, he didn't sign up to be married to this woman knowing that if she died, that then he would also have to die and all that other stuff. So it's like, it wasn't fair for him to have to get thrown in there because he didn't know what he was doing in some ways. Yeah. So, yeah. Softens softens the the blow of the other corpse's femur to the back of the head that puts you out of your misery a bit. <laughs> yeah. So it's fascinating to me how this story, too, is set up as both, you know, kind of like this like epic travelogue tale of this guy. And that it it also includes like animals and objects and stuff that are real, that like exist, that we like know that they are real and like they exist. Yeah. And then a lot of things that we know like aren't right. <laughs> It's just super fascinating because it matches with a lot of other like famous travelers and the journals and stuff that they were keeping or the tales that they would tell the tales that they would tell when they would get back like from their journeys. Um, so I have a quote. Get excited, Jeff. From Arabian Nights of Companion by Robert Irwin. This is from an article called The Fictive Travelogue of Sinbad and Thousand One Nights. It's my Moaz Merbark Ramsey Quadiri. They wrote this essay for the International Research Journal of Multidisciplinary Studies. It says... The miraculous experiences of Sinbad's travels find parallels in the literatures of several nations. For example, the giant rock whose egg resembles a huge white dome also appears in Marco Polo's descriptions of Madagascar and other islands off the eastern coast of Africa. The whale that is mistaken for an island on the first voyage has parallels with the great whales described by Pliny and Salinas. Al-Khazavi, 13th century Persian geographer, Marco Polo, and St. Epiphanius, Bishop of Constantia, mention areas similar to the Valley of Diamonds discovered by Sinbad on his second voyage. One can further relate the cannibal giants of the third voyage to the Cyclopses of the Odyssey and the incident of Sinbad's companions being fattened by cannibals with food that causes them to lose their reason suggests the lotus eating of the Odyssey. A Scythian custom of burying alive with the dead those who had been dear to them referred to by St. Jerome parallels Sinbad's burial in the cavern of the dead. So a lot of the elements that we like heard in this story have other instances of them popping up in just other travelogues, other story collections in that same kind of time period. And so it was kind of hard to tell, you know, what parts of the story were real and what was like fantasy at the time that these stories were being told. I mean, now today we listen to the story and we can tell what's real and what's not. We can be like, obviously, there's no giant rock bird that's 
you know, going to grab us and throw us into a valley of diamonds. But in the same stories, we have rhinoceroses. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And those are very much real. But people who were listening to them a long time ago, it was hard to know what was real and what was fake. So somebody might have been listening to that story and been like, oh, my gosh, can you imagine like seeing a rock bird like fly over our city? And somebody could be like, oh, man. How could you believe that stuff? It makes as much sense as a rhinoceros. (laughs) You know, like, it it was when these stories were being, like, told, you know, the people who were listening to them in the cities who'd never traveled before, like, they didn't know what stuff was, like, real. And, you know, early science, early biology. And, you know, what was just complete fantasy. I also love, too... In that, how there was like the stories within the stories and some of the stories within the stories were like, you know, Sinbad would remember this story that he had heard about these people, you know, yeeting sheep off of the mountain so that the rocks would come and like pick them up and then using that to his advantage. And within the Thousand One Nights, it's always super fun for there to be like, not that those were necessarily nested tales, but like, yeah, it's so clear in the Thousand One Nights how important storytelling is to these cultures because they're like every story has multiple stories within it and it's like the whole thing is just all about storytelling how storytelling saves Scheherazade's life how in these tales Sinbad having heard these stories about these people that would cultivate diamonds by doing this thing like saved his life yeah people either telling or remembering stories are constantly being the thing that like changes the course of their fate, which is super fascinating. It's super interesting. It's just like how meta it gets with storytelling. And it's like, these are all stories about how important stories are. So we can pass on these stories that hopefully they can be helpful to you in your life and you can apply them in some way. Yeah. I think that's like a beautiful point. I mean, we've even talked about at the beginning of the episode how like this story cycle wasn't even original to like the Thousand and One Nights like collection, Mm -hmm. but it fits so well into everything because like it has some of those exact same like themes and ideas like what you're talking about with like the, the storytelling. And I mean, I even love how like meta this one kind of gets with like, the Caliph Harun al-Rashid and the six mm-hmm. voyage kind of ends with him telling his tale, having it written down and then added to the King's library, the Caliph's library, which like we know from looking at history, it was like a real place. Like the house of wisdom was like a real legitimate place where a right. lot of these stories were translated, compiled and like possibly stored. And so like, I just love that like element in it and that it got put into the thousand and one nights uh, by Antoine Galland. <laughs> <laughs> Even though, you know, Antoine Galland, he was doing some iffy stuff with, uh, you know, main maintaining legitimacy for some of these tales. Um, I, I love that this was added so seamlessly, like into the Thousand and One Nights. So when you look at these stories, you can see that some of them have, you know, parallels with stories that were written earlier than them some of the more common ones that people might be like oh wait 
Hmm, this sounds really familiar. The mind kind of goes straight to like Odysseus in the Odyssey. Mm. We have a quote by Robert Irwin in The Arabian Nights, A Companion. And he says, here and there throughout the nights, one comes across what seemed to be survivals of stories and images from the literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Galand was the first to consider this question, and he noticed that Simbad's encounter on his third voyage with a giant whom he blinds before making his escape, which was a story we didn't tell, was an echo of the incident in the Iliad in which Odysseus encounters Polyphemus. Polyphemus? 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 One of those. Stick it no in idea. there. Um, and so, you know, there was this idea that even Antoine Galland in like 1704 was saying, oh, this sounds really similar to some themes inside of the Odyssey. But there is actually a story that dates back to the Middle Kingdom of Egypt 2040 to 1782 BCE, so like 4,000 years ago. And this tale is called The Tale of the Shipwrecked Sailor. And in this story, this sailor is in front of the king explaining this like long journey that he went on and basically why he's coming back like penniless and without any of you know the goods and stuff that he had been sent out with and so he comes back with this like extraordinary tale of all of the things that he had seen and encountered to like explain in front of the king basically what happened to all of his stuff and basically the king like listened to you know his long story and was like you know what it's fine we're good and then this story is supposedly written down from there, which I think is incredible to think about that this tale of the shipwrecked sailor, you know, ends this way when we just read this story about Sinbad the sailor and how he stands before a king in kind of a similar way and gives his long tale about what happened to him and his story gets written down and supposedly placed into the library of the king. So you have these ancient origins of like where this story could come from, which makes it a really important story to talk about, to know, which is, you know, I thought it'd be fun for our listeners to get to hear the story of Sinbad the Sailor because it's such a well-known story. It's kind of a good one to know, but also it's such a good one to know, not just because it has these ancient origins, but because we also have modern stories that were patterned off of this, like Robinson Crusoe and Gulliver's Travels. And these stories have just been like remade and retold about people going on these epic voyages and referring back to Simbad as this name that, you know, us as a culture still know today as reference to an amazing traveler. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you are enjoying what we're doing, please support us by leaving us a review or share us with your friends. Special thanks to Andrew Forey for our music and Clarice Inch for our artwork. If you are a dreamer, come in. 
If you are a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer, if you're a pretender, come sit by my fire, for we have some flax golden tails to spin. Come in, come in. Invitation by Shel Silverstein. Did that sound like a good end? I think so. Good enough. Or you can cut out all that part because I felt like, you know, I, I got a good, a, like, cool end somewhere else up there, too, if you're like, Katrina, you kind of, you, you had the football and you fumbled it. I've recently watched football, so I've, I know more about it now. And apparently you can fumble a ball and then your team loses it.